If you will, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I've changed up the text a little bit, so we're going to actually be looking at verses 4 through 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, be our text today. We are continuing a series this month, five weeks in October. Today we come to week four in our series on the five solas, five solas of the Reformation, the word solas meaning alone or only. These are five principles that reemerged during the Reformation, 1500s, 1600s, sort of, technically before that, but kind of popularized or re-emerged re, uh, re during that, that time. Uh, as an attempt though to, to ground the church in the true way of salvation. And so these, these principles, these, these truths are foundational to Christianity. To quote Matthew Barrett from an essay found on the Gospel Coalition's website, he writes, these five statements of the evangelical faith lay at the center of what distinguished the theology of the Reformation from the theology of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. Sola Scriptura is the belief that because Scripture is God's inspired word, it's the only inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Solus Christus is the assertion that Christ alone is the basis on which the ungodly are justified in God's sight. Sola Fide maintains that the believer receives the redemption Christ has accomplished only through faith. Sola Gratia proclaims that all of our salvation from beginning to end is by grace and grace alone. Because of these things, he writes, the reformers held fast to the phrase soli deo gloria, that only God receives glory for our salvation. Thus the five solas form the nucleus of the evangelical faith. They not only capture the gospel of Jesus Christ and explain how that gospel takes root in the center, but they also define where the authority of that gospel resides and to what end that gospel is preached and proclaimed. Our focus today will be on the doctrine of solus Christus, which is Christ alone. Really, this teaching stands at the center of all of the other alone solas. So as we take a look at this doctrine this morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. It's an introduction to a letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and in that introduction, what we see is a great example of just how central the doctrine of Christ is and must be for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was central to Paul's ministry, to his message, and we see it clearly here in the verses that are before us. Let me read beginning in verse four of 1 Corinthians chapter one. Paul writes, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's letter 
to the Corinthians is largely a letter of rebuke and correction. You read the letter and it's, it's heavy on that. Uh, Paul had first visited and evangelized Corinth in the spring of AD 50, and he stayed about a year and a half there. And after he had left, he had been wanting to go back. That was Paul's pattern. He would go to an area, evangelize, stay there a while, make disciples, see churches established and started, and then he would move on. And then he would circle back around to visit the churches, to encourage them. And he had wanted to go back to Corinth to do that. But instead, circumstances had prevented it and various other things as well. So instead, he sends a series of letters, two of which we have recorded for us in the New Testament. This letter, 1 Corinthians, seems to be a letter that's in response to a letter the church had sent to Paul, highlighting some of the issues that the church was facing, some divisions, some theological concerns, some, some other situations going on there in the church that needed correction. And the bulk of this letter deals with that. It's a, it's a pretty confrontational letter, heavy on the rebuke and correction side of things. But before Paul launches into addressing the problems in Corinth, he begins by reflecting upon how the work of God in Jesus Christ redeemed them, who they were, who they were as he wrote to them, who they are in Christ. He's capturing here in these first introductory verses the centrality of Jesus Christ in the life of this church. Indeed, if you were to take the first 10 verses, if you were to read verse one to verse 10, 11 times, no less than 11 times in these verses, you will find a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Clearly, even in an introduction, how central the doctrine of Christ, and we could say the doctrine of Christ alone, was, and how it shaped Paul's perspective about himself and about the church. So as we look at these opening verses today, I want us to see really the foundation of Paul's gratitude for the church of Corinth. He was thankful. If you were to read the letter, if you didn't have the first nine verses, you wouldn't think Paul was so thankful for this church. They were a train wreck. But he's thankful for them. Why is he thankful? Because they were in Christ. So as we look at the foundation of Paul's gratitude, we're gonna see why Christ must be central to our hope and our joy as Christians. In fact, we're gonna walk through three truths about Jesus in this text, followed by four points of application at the end. Hope you brought your lunch. Just kidding. Uh, yeah, so three truths and then four points of application. First truth is this, is our lives are redeemed by Christ. Our lives are redeemed by Christ. Paul expresses his gratitude for the believers in Corinth, but specifically he, he acknowledges, verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because, what's he thankful for? Of the grace of God. Last week we talked about grace. We talked about salvation being grace driven. It's grace alone. It's not by works, not by the things that you do. It's by the grace of God, the gift of God's favor to you. Well, notice what that grace is rooted in. Because of the grace of God that was given you, in Christ Jesus. 
in Christ Jesus. This grace God gave is a grace that is in Christ. So again, last week we considered grace alone. The week before that we looked at faith alone. All of these are connected, right? It's by grace alone, an act of God's favor and kindness, not by works, through faith alone. This grace is received through faith in Christ alone. Text makes that clear that this grace was given in Christ Jesus. It's rooted in the work of Jesus and no one else. Paul's saying that the grace that saved these believers took hold of them through the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. In short, that's what Paul is saying. This grace is a grace that Jesus gives us accomplishes the redemption that we needed. The source of our salvation, Paul is assuming here, by implication, he's, he's assuming, he's basing his entire sense of gratitude on the reality that salvation by grace alone comes through the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. The source of our salvation is exclusive. There's not many sources, there's one source and it comes through Christ. Jesus made that clear himself in John 14, six when he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Luke reiterates that in Acts chapter four, verse 12 when he says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name you're going to find grace attached to. There's no other savior that you're going to find. Oh, well, Jesus is just a good one among many. No, he's the savior through which grace comes. If there is no Jesus, there is no savior. There's no salvation. God's work of grace is the work of Jesus. Just think about this, the the centrality of Jesus, the son of God who came from heaven to live a life of a human life on the earth, to, to pay the penalty ultimately for our sins, be raised from the dead, promised to come again. The centrality of Jesus Christ is really the message of the entire Bible from beginning to end. This grand narrative that we have, this is not a book of 66 different loosely attached books that just kind of random stories that that just were slung together. No, from Genesis to Revelation, there's no S on Revelation, just Revelation, right? Sorry, pet peeves come out. Um, Genesis to Revelation, one storyline from beginning to end. And that story from beginning to end is centered upon Christ. Friends, if, you, if Jesus is not the only savior, throw your Bibles away. It's about him. It's about him. If, if there are other options, you don't need the scripture. It's that central. The whole Bible is about Christ. The Old Testament laying the foundation, pointing forward to him, the New Testament recording his coming in fulfillment of the promises made. It's all about him for you. So, there is no second string savior. Lots of second string quarterbacks, right? There's no second string savior. There's simply no other way by which God's grace flows to us. Jesus got that. 
In fact, if you read Luke chapter 24, 26 and 27, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples after his resurrection. They don't recognize him at first. They're recounting all that had happened in Jerusalem with Jesus and his death and all. And then we're told that Jesus says, or that, that we're told that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And at that point, they only had the Old Testament. He, he opens the, the Old Testament and beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he tells them about what the Bible says about him. So our lives, if you are going to be redeemed, if you're going to be saved, if your sins are going to be forgiven, if you're going to be right with the holy God, it's by the grace of God which comes through the Son of God, Jesus Christ and him alone. Our lives are redeemed by him and no other. Number two, our lives are enriched in Christ. Look at verses five through seven. He says, I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift. It's really an amazing statement, especially if you know the rest of the the book. There's so many, so many deficiencies, so many problems in this church. And right here, Paul is affirming them as recipients of grace in Christ. And not only have they received grace and been redeemed by Christ, he is acknowledging that they've been enriched, that they are spiritually wealthy in Christ Jesus. He points out how the believers there have been given spiritual gifts. Specifically, he highlights two, speech and knowledge. This would have been treasured in a place like Corinth. It was a place known for its oratory skill and, 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 and those kinds of things, these, these public displays of, 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 of speeches and whatnot. And so he, he says, you as a church, you've been gifted in that. They've used it though, if you were to read the rest of the letter, you can see various ways that they've abused that and and kind of messed things up even through their gifts. But right here, he's saying, listen, it's clear you've been enriched in Christ. Your gifts, pretty amazing what God has done for you and what he's doing in you. How he's blessed you, how he's enriched you, how he's given you these spiritual gifts. And these spiritual gifts are are the very things that validate their genuineness the genuineness of their response to the gospel. So he affirms them. Indeed, he says they're not lacking in any gift. It wasn't as if Corinth had some lack. They had everything they needed to be faithful. They had everything they needed for life and godliness, as Peter would say. Everything. They've been enriched in every way, had every kind of spiritual gift that you could imagine, and yet they were struggling. But here he's affirming them. They've been enriched Listen, the salvation that Jesus brings to us is one that also enriches and equips us. If you were to turn to chapter 12, I know we don't have time to do a complete study of 1 Corinthians, but in 1 Corinthians 12, the the chapter that really highlights these spiritual gifts that he refers to in chapter one, 
In verse one of chapter 12, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by, to, to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Then he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to, to one is given the spirit through the utterance of wisdom, to another utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith, to another gifts of healing, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these, he says, are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one of individually as he wills. And then notice what he says in verse 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And he talks about all the body parts there, of how useful you know, all the pieces of the body are. And he talks about that in verses 14 through 26. And then verse 27, then he says this, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You see what he does here is he recognizes the variety of gifts that the Lord gives us through the Spirit. And as we get, are given all of these various gifts through the Spirit, we are the body of Christ. We, we are serving, a ref, we're a reflection of that, that unity that, that we find in Christ. We are saved by Christ to be the body of Christ. And as such, these gifts are given to us so that we can serve one another, it says, for the common good, also as a means to advance God's cause in the world and to point to the work of Christ. So we find that in Christ, our lives are enriched, we are gifted, we are blessed, we, we are spiritually wealthy. The number three, our lives are sustained by Christ. You see that in verses eight and nine. It says so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait Verse seven, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul understands that the biblical narrative from beginning to end is about Christ. He understands it's centered on him from the promised seed of Genesis 3, verse 16, to the conquering king we find in Revelation, Christ is there from beginning to end. And not only is that true about the narrative of the Bible, it is true with regards to our salvation. Jesus is not just the doorkeeper that gets us into the kingdom. He is the one to which we give our lives and devotion to. The saving work of Christ is not something we only encounter at the point of faith. No, the saving work of Jesus follows us and sustains us to the very end. So many people in the Bible understood that. I mean, we don't read Jude very often. It's just a short chapter there at the, towards the end of the New Testament, but Jude's a one chapter letter. And at the beginning and at the end of Jude, you see how Jude gets this. 
In verse one, Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who were called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And then at the end of that letter, in verse 24, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever, amen. Jude highlights this work of God to keep us in Christ, for Christ. This work of preservation is a work of Christ that we cannot overlook or dismiss. I think sometimes Christians think Jesus kind of gets us in and then we're kind of responsible to keep ourselves in. No, that's wrong. <laughs> Jesus gets us in and he preserves us to the end. Yes, we're called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We're called to give our lives in devotion and faithfulness to Christ, to serve him, to obey him, of course. But it is the Lord who, through Jesus, preserves and keeps and sustains. Brothers and sisters, you as a Christian have a confident standing before God, not because you're smart. A lot of you are smart, very smart, 2,000 times smarter than me. I mean, I'm a Baptist that pulls for Notre Dame, a Catholic football team, right? Not very smart, right? Congratulations to you Alabama fans, by the way. Yep. It's not, you being sustained is not, not dependent upon how bright you are. It is dependent on how faithful Christ is. You know, sometimes I think we, we wonder about this. I mean, if, if we are truly in Christ, the good news, friends, is this, we're gonna make it. We're going to make it. But sometimes I think we wonder if we really are, right? We, we wonder, we, we look at our lives and we wonder, will I really make it? And when we ask that question or some form of that, what are we depending on at that moment? Yourself. The Bible says we will make it. Christ is present to sustain. He will keep us. He will do it. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus does not fail. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Graham Goldsworthy in his book, According to Plan, an introduction to biblical theology wrote, the gospel not only brings us to the new birth and faith as Christians, it's God's means of saving us totally. The gospel converts us and sustains us in the Christian life and brings us to maturity and the gospel brings us to perfection through the resurrection of the dead. You see the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ saves, but it also sustains. The entirety of our salvation from our justification to our glorification rests in the hands of Jesus. Doesn't downplay the importance of faith and works these are human responses we're called to, to such grace, but we're called to trust in Christ and called to follow him. But as we do that, we are called to rest confidently that he's the one sustaining us and keeping us and preserving us. This is good news. Our Lord sustains us by his grace. Now, as we think through these points, 
the fact that we're redeemed, enriched, and sustained by Christ. I think there's some things that we should take away. The doctrine of Christ alone is not just some mere theological slogan that's just true in and of its own right. It is true, but it has very real and specific application to our lives. It means something. Like it impacts us. So let me just point out four, I kind of have five, but we're just gonna keep them to four points of application in response to this central doctrine of Christ alone. Number one, what does it mean? It means, first of all, we must trust in Jesus for our salvation. To be a Christian means to be in Christ. It means to recognize that your sins have separated you from a holy and righteous God who has every right to judge and condemn you because of your sinful rebellion against him. But in his kindness, by grace alone, God sends Jesus into the world to be the one sole provision that could reconcile you to God. Jesus lives this life of faithful obedience to his father, dies as a sacrifice on a cross to bear the penalty and judgment our sin deserves. And the, the, the promise of the gospel is that if you would believe in that, if you would embrace that as your hope, your sins would be forgiven and your life would be transformed. That is how you receive salvation. As an act of faith, you are trusting in this finished work of Jesus. So friend, if you're here or if you're watching our live stream this morning and you're, you're thinking, well, I'm not a Christian. Listen, your only hope is Christ. Your only hope is to turn away from everything you're trying to do to clean yourself up before God and to put all of your hope and trust in Jesus who did everything needed to secure your salvation. Put your faith in Christ. Christians, as we think about this call to trust in Jesus, by God's grace, this is what your testimony is. Even, even your faith, we know that, that Paul tells us is a gift. Listen, if this is true, Christians, if the doctrine of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which it is true, then it means this message must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Think about that. The majority, there's 7.9 billion people on the planet today, give or take a few. And the majority of them don't follow Jesus. In a report that's produced by the International Mission Board, the global status of evangelical Christianity charts the progress of the gospel throughout the world. It identifies some 11,936 people groups in the world, the ethnic linguistic groups that exist, that have their own culture, own language, and they're identified as a unique people group in the world. 347 of those people groups have zero, zero, Believers, no evangelical presence whatsoever. Less than 2% that have no active church planting going on 
some 4,770 people groups. So 4,770 people groups in the world. Of those people groups, less than 2% would be active evangelical Christians with no active church planting going on. If you go up to the next level, still less than 2% with some church planting going on. There's 1,790 people groups. My point is, there's almost 7,000 people groups in the world. Of the almost 12,000, 57% of the people groups in the world have less than 2% of their populations trusting in and following Jesus. A few weeks ago when we were in England, a couple of the cities that we, just England, just think about the rich history of Christianity that was in England. Today, it's a wasteland, spiritually. In the three cities that we visited, in all of those cities, less than 2% evangelical Christian. Over three billion people in the plan, on the planet today, of the eight, almost eight billion people that live, have little to no access of the gospel. And if the Bible is telling us, which it is, that salvation comes through Christ alone, then we have to ask the question, what are we doing to make sure that these billions of people on the planet have access to the gospel? Many of these, all of them probably, probably think that many of them are blinded by, by some kind of other religion and, and they think that through some religious ritual that they take part in that they're maybe okay, maybe not, I don't know. But others have no idea. There are people in the world today. I mean, we, we can't understand this, I don't think. There are people in the world today that have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ, never heard it, don't have any idea who he is. And if salvation comes through him alone, then it's an exhortation to the church to to ask the hard questions of what are we doing to get the gospel to the ends of the earth? What are you doing to get the gospel to the ends of the earth? How is that marked in your prayers, in your giving, in your serving? Friends, it's our job to tell them. But I get it, we, we don't have to just think about the ends of the earth. There are people in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces that don't know Christ. It's our job to tell them. If salvation comes through Christ alone, then they need to know their salvation is dependent upon him. I wanna ask you this question. When is the last time you shared the gospel with someone. I didn't ask you when you invited someone to church. When is the last time you as a Christian shared with someone else how they can have forgiveness of sins and walk with Jesus? I'm not saying that, I'm not asking, it's a question that, that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I'm not saying that to, to kind of heap guilt on you. There are some people in this room that have never done that, ever. If you were honest, you'd say, I've never, I've never shared the gospel with anyone. Or if I have, it's been a while. Friends, we, we have to see that our calling as Christians is to be ambassadors, that we're called to proclaim Christ. So if it's been a while or if you've never done that, don't, don't rest, don't, don't, don't just wallow in guilt 
and shame. Don't be guilty. Just say, okay, Lord, help me do that. So as you begin praying, praying for opportunities and boldness and, and, and for people to be able to, to speak into the lives of others about Christ. It's super practical. So we're called to trust in Jesus and by implication, if that is true, if Jesus is the only way to salvation, we are called to proclaim him. Number two, we're called to walk with Jesus. Paul points out the fact that we are enriched in Christ. Specifically, he highlights various spiritual, spiritual gifts here. The point of these spiritual blessings is so that we can use them to edify the body and advance the cause of Christ in the world as we're walking with Christ, being part of the body of Christ, utilizing the gifts the Lord has given us to serve Jesus faithfully. Paul says in Colossians 2 verse six, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, be grateful as you're, as you're established in Christ. Part of that means you're walking with him, you're, you're walking with him, following him, doing the things he calls us to do. Friends, what does your walk with Jesus look like? Number three, we are called to long for Christ. Paul's point about the gifts are mentioned in the context of the believer waiting for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the text. Verse seven, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are many things that we're called to as believers, but one important thing is to joyfully anticipate the coming of Christ. We're anticipating, we're waiting. It's an active kind of waiting. We're, we're following Jesus, we're, we're obeying him, we're, we're joyfully anticipating, waiting for the appearing of our Lord. Sure, Christians will often focus on Christ's return, but I think in ways that are quite distracting and often miss the point. Sometimes they're found often debating various views of eschatology or end times theology, which is important to think through those things. But sometimes we get more interested in debating those things than joyfully waiting and anticipating the fact that he's coming again. When's the last time you woke up in the morning and thought, boy, I wish today was the day Christ would return. That your longing for Christ is that intense. That you, as you're enjoying the riches of Christ, you're doing so waiting, anticipating his return. And then number four, it's a similar point. I think we're, this doctrine calls us to enjoy Jesus. Paul ends this deeply Christ-centered introduction in verse nine by saying, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We've not just been saved by Christ. We're not just waiting for his return. We've been called into fellowship with him. This word fellowship points to a partnership and a participation 
that we have in Christ. That we're called to enjoy this fellowship, this relationship that we have. I think sometimes we, I know for me, I, I can be guilty of just thinking that Jesus is, is that object, that person that I must trust in, have my sins forgiven, I sing to, and it's almost out there instead of understanding that we are indwelled by Christ, that we have relationship with him, fellowship with him, participation, partnership in him. How often do I enjoy his presence? Well, friends, the doctrine of Christ alone is indeed the nucleus of our faith. Without Christ, there is no Christianity. Jesus is not simply the source of our redemption. He is the source of our life now and in the age to come. He is the way to the Father, but he is also the present sustainer that will see us through to the end when he comes again. Historian Michael Reeves said it well, the center, the cornerstone, the jewel and the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. The center is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the scripture is clear. We are saved by grace alone. As we receive that grace through faith alone, but it all rests entirely upon the complete work of Christ alone. Friend, if you do not know him, he is your only hope. And if you do know him, walk in him in great joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can look at your word and be reminded of how our salvation is centered, not upon our obedience, not upon our wisdom, not upon our effort, but our salvation is dependent upon one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Lord, my prayer right now is that if there are those in our midst today that are not trusting in Christ, that you would show them, that you would convict them, that you would open their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is and the, the fact that there is no forgiveness of sin. There's no way to be reconciled to you apart from him. That he must be the object of our faith. That he is the one and he is the only one that has brought your grace to bear upon our lives through his obedience, through his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection. So Lord, would you move in their hearts today to trust in Jesus, to believe in him, to turn from every other work, to turn from every other sense of seeking to, to earn approval with you, but Lord, that their hope would be rooted through faith in Christ. Father, would you do that work? And for those of us who are trusting in Christ, would you remind us that there is much joy 
God, that our lives are rich with so many blessings. And that as faithful followers, that we are called to to walk with Christ, to enjoy him, to anticipate his return. And Lord, to be faithful ambassadors proclaiming him to a lost world all around us. So Lord, would you prompt our hearts today in ways that we could honor Christ all the more. Show us where we have neglected faithful service to him and for him. So Lord, we we ask that you would work in our hearts the things that are needed today. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is the one who gave himself and paid it all for our sake, that we may have hope. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.